0: Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today is a very, very, very special episode. Uh, we're going to be talking, I, I have a special guest with me, and we're going to be talking about two conceptions of the God-world relation. Uh, one is the simulation hypothesis, and the other is the authorial analogy. And I have with me Dr. James Anderson, one of my favorite thinkers, and his work has largely introduced me to both these topics uh now someone might be saying well the simulation hypothesis is not really a, a god world relation idea but I, I think it is and uh i'll, I'll tell you why as uh, as we're talking with dr anderson so um without further ado let's just bring him right in dr anderson thanks so much for coming back on the podcast
1: thanks for having mm-hmm. me back
0: um yeah, yeah, my pleasure. This is this is fantastic. So your your work has been really influential in uh, a lot of my work. So I've, I've, many of my research papers here at TEDs have been because you wrote a blog post on something, and I thought, man, that's a great idea. Let me keep going with that. Um, so I really appreciate that. And that is, people can find that blog at uh, prognosco.com. dot com. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Okay, and that's uh, that's Greek for foreknown, right? Yeah, to to foreknow. That's right. Yeah, because okay. there's a, a long
1: story behind
0: it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's there's a lot of great um a, a lot of great blog posts there. And before we jump in, I, I wanted to ask you about your blog philosophy. Uh what what is uh your conception of your blog? Because some of the things in there are uh just kind of you you'll talk about uh you talk about Iron Man uh dualism and it's kinda of like off the cuff and it's really interesting. But then others are like a massive takedown of a book. Um and it's like, this could have been a journal article. So can you just lay out, like, why, why what, what do you think of your blog post? Like, what do you, what's the philosophy behind that?
1: I'm flattered that you think that there's a philosophy behind my blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's really just a, a dumping ground hmm. for thoughts and arguments that, on, on the one hand, I think are interesting enough to, to share, and to yep. get some feedback on but are not well formed enough to deserve publication or an attempt at publication so often they will be answers to questions that i receive so i get a lot of correspondence people saying oh what do you think of this what do you think of that and mm-hmm. sometimes i'll i'll reply privately but i think if if what i have to say might be of uh, wider Utility. Yeah. Then I'll I'll write something up, partly for selfish reasons, so that I don't have to keep repeating myself. <laughs> right, right. For example, right. the topic that we're about to talk about, the uh, simulation hypothesis. Yeah. I, I I got a series of emails uh, asking, you know, what did I what did I think about this? How would I respond to it? And uh, that seemed like a, a good prompting to write something up on it.
0: Yeah. And, and I was so excited when I saw that come out because I'd i been thinking about it a lot, mostly because I'm, I work in campus ministry and oftentimes when you're evangelizing or when you're discipling one of your students, they'll say, well, couldn't we just be living in a computer simulation? And it comes up again and again. So I read, uh, Bostrom's essay, his, his, uh, famous, I think it's 2001 or 2003 essay. And, uh, and then I saw you post on it. So I, I was, uh, it was awesome. And you did something differently than, than I would have. But now I do what you do. Um, so so you started thinking about this because people asked you or had you heard of this before? Had, did, did you were you uh, aware of Bostrom's argument when it first came out? I,
1: I was, maybe not immediately, but yeah. it, it got enough buzz that sooner or later you were going to hear about it f- from some other source. I'm not sure when I first heard about it, might have been actually through Sam Harris's podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I listened to Harris's podcast from time to time, and um, I don't know if he had Bostrom on or someone else was talking about it, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was that that prompted me to, to go take a look for myself. I, I've never been all that interested in, in uh, these simulation hypotheses as, as serious proposals. I find it hard to take them seriously. And they always seem to be uh, posited by people who are coming from a very naturalistic perspective right. and um, usually by people who are much more, Sympathetic to the strong AI thesis that mm-hmm. uh, that computers could become conscious and could um, replicate human thought, mm-hmm. and since I I don't find that the least bit plausible, <laughs> um, uh, a lot of these hypotheses I don't I don't find plausible in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but since since the Matrix came out, of course, that's become the the paradigm for the simulation hypothesis and. Mm-hmm. It uh, used to be, what if what if we're being deceived by an evil demon? Right. But poor poor Descartes has been, you know, nudged out by the Wachowski brothers, or <laughs> whatever I, I forget the name. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, and Now it's the Matrix. So what if what if we're what if we're living in the Matrix?
0: Yeah. Well, that's a great point. And you mentioned, uh, you you brought this point out in uh, your first blog post. Uh, I think you've done two. And your first one, you you distinguish this from different uh, global skeptical threats, like uh, brain in the vat, um, like maybe idealism and some of these others. Um, can you just lay it out for for the listeners? Like how how is the simulation hypothesis different than brain in a vat or or uh, idea some form of idealism? Well.
1: I'm not sure it is different in principle than brain in the vat, because the the brain in the vat could be a a version of the simulation hypothesis. So if the simulation hypothesis is is the general idea that our experiences of the world are not veridical, but are in fact simulated by... A computer system or some nefarious uh, agent of some sort, mm-hmm. then you know the brain in the vat uh, hypothesis is just one version of it because yeah. the idea is that you know, you you think you you think you have a body, you think you're living in in the world that uh, appears to you, but in fact, you're a brain that's having all. Uh, its experiences stimulated artificially through electrodes or whatever, yeah. but of course it's the same principle. You're being your your experiences are being simulated so that you are inhabiting a virtual world rather than a real world. Um, so the you know the brain in a vat is really just the the precursor of the matrix hypothesis, I suppose.
0: Yeah, yeah I I think you're right, and um, so. In the, on the popular level, I've noticed, uh, like you said, people will say, maybe we're living in the matrix. Uh, often they don't say computer simulation, but they say matrix. And this computer programmer, Riz von Verk wrote a book called uh, The Simulation Hypothesis, creative, creatively titled. And uh, and he, he goes with that version, that we are a brain in a vat, that there's something outside the simulation, um, like the matrix where Neo is in base reality. Um, but But... In the more, I don't know, intellectual circles, but more into the academy, more following the uh, the pure uh, Bostromian view, it's that we are digital consciousness, that we are literally simulated, and um, so maybe I'll just set out the three uh, the three premises. Uh, Bostrom says one um, that uh, we'll never be technologically advanced to uh, enough to create simulated conscious beings like ourselves, or two. Um, we will reach that level of advancement, but for some reason, we don't do it. Maybe for moral reasons, like we together, collectively, humanity says it's it's morally wrong to do that. And we make laws and we don't do it. Or three, we're most certainly living, uh, most likely living in a computer simulation because you give take, take the technological advances that we have now and just project that into the future, 10 years, 20, 100 years if you need to. But looking at our trajectory, it seems like if there's no reason for us not to do it, And we're able to do it, then we probably already have done it. And we're currently living in that simulation. Uh, Do do you think that's a fair uh, assessment or a fair summary of the argument? And if so, uh, which of the premises, premises do we deny?
1: Right, yeah, that's that's right. So, so Bostrom basically lays out these three options and says you you got to pick one of these three doors. Yeah. Uh, either door one is we never get to the point where we can actually create a simulation that would be you know so so realistic that that beings like us could inhabit it and think it's the real world. So that's right. option one. It's just not technologically uh, feasible, possible. Uh, option two is that yeah, the technology does appear, but we're conscientious enough, or we have some sort of uh, inhibiting reason that prevents us from creating such a simulation and, and populating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then option three is that uh, we can do it, and we, we will do it. And therefore, I suppose we have done it, or someone, uh, it's not we, but, but someone right. like us has, has done it, And uh, and that would have happened, I think I think the idea is that it would happen recursively so that you would have a simulation. And then within the simulation, the same principles apply to the simulation within the simulation. Right. All the way down. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, sort of inception style (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, uh, simulations all the way down. Or at least there's a there's a uh, there comes a point when there are more simulations than there are. Uh, of all the of all the um of all the worlds that exist the the simulated worlds far out outnumber the singular real world or the base reality um and therefore prob- probabilistically uh, we are in one of those simulated worlds rather than the real
0: world yeah well so uh I like to motivate this sometimes for people who think uh oh, it 's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But let's go a little bit further and looking at it. And uh, for anyone who's watched The Office, uh, in The Office, Dwight Schrute uh, plays his game Second Life, and he makes a second life, second life of Dwight inside the uh, reality. So all you have to do is imagine that second Dwight making a third Dwight, making a fourth Dwight. And we probably would do that if we we're able to. And so Bostrom's reasoning is, yeah, there's probably, you know, way, way, way more simulated conscious beings than there are. Uh, base reality beings like we take ourselves to be, and therefore just probability wise you should think of yourself as probably being a digital consciousness instead of one of the lucky base reality conscious beings
1: yeah yeah so, I mean I suppose it is it is plausible to think that if it would happen once, then it would happen uh, because this the same the same rationale for the original um simulators creating a simulation would apply then to the simulated beings and so on and so on and once you once you kickstart the process then then there's no reason why i suppose you wouldn't have simulations within simulations
0: yeah so uh you you give a plantigian answer which i want to save for for the moment which i think is great but uh are we able to just deny premise one uh by saying you know i i don't believe in strong ai i think that Searle's Chinese Room just totally destroys the idea that there can be a simulated consciousness. So then I, I just affirm one and say we're not living in a computer simulation. Well,
1: one thing I I did in the original blog post, uh, as you know, was to distinguish different conceptions of a simulation. Yeah. And I, I laid out three basic options. One is the the, uh, the Sims option, where it is just a computer game and it's fictional characters in a computer game, and, and that one you can write write off right away because the characters don't even exist. Um, the second view would be the uh, the Matrix view, mm-hmm. where we we exist uh, we exist outside the Matrix, but we're plugged into it, so it's yeah. just our experiences that are generated, but we exist outside it. And then the third option is the um, sort of uh, we are We are completely um generated by some computer, so um we're we're basically conscious simulations running on some computer, so we have some physical realization, but this physical realization gives rise to a a conscious mind which has experiences that are of this simulated world and um really, I think well I guess uh bostrom's um proposal or his argument is assuming the third scenario Mm -hmm. where there is a computer system within which that within which um, conscious beings come into existence that presumably if you think that uh, consciousness is an emergent property of material things as many naturalists argue that the mind is just an emergent property or an emergent phenomenon from matter, then that could happen with a computer system as well. You could get a computer that has the right kind of um, circuitry, the right kind of functional connections, so that it actually gives rise to a mind, a a consciousness, a first-person perspective. And uh, to circle back to the question, I, I think there are pretty compelling <laughs> philosophical arguments uh against the the metaphysical possibility of that not not that it's technologically beyond our ken but that metaphysically you just you can't get mind and consciousness out of a purely material substrate uh one one argument would be uh, sales chinese Room argument against functionalism yeah. if a if a computer is essentially just a a machine that is processing symbols, it's purely functional in its connections, basically a Turing machine, Um, then then a machine like that, while it can can simulate human reasoning, uh, some kinds of human reasoning, it it cannot actually, it doesn't think in the way that a human being does. It doesn't have... um, uh, as I, I think Searle puts it, it doesn't have the semantic aspect yeah. of thought. It has yeah. might, it might have the syntactical uh, aspect, but not the semantic aspect. And so, it's not really thinking. It's not actually having any mental content. A computer doesn't actually know what it's doing. It's not aware of what it's doing. It doesn't have any intentions, and therefore, it's not um, a, 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 a machine could not give rise to that kind of thought process that we have. I think there's also, in addition to that, the problem of subjectivity, namely that material, material entities have... Uh, certain kinds of properties, the sort of properties that, that scientists uh, measure, like uh, mass and extension and velocity and so forth, and these are very different kinds of properties than the uh, first-person subjective properties that consciousness has. Um, you know, like like the having of experiences, what it's what it's like to experience yeah. such and such. Those kind of subjective features are not possessed. There there is a complete category error to ascribe those to uh, a material entity. So those are just a couple of reasons why I I don't think that this sort of simulation hypothesis gets off off the ground, because the scenario that it's positing is
0: metaphysically impossible in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good point. So so even... Even though we're coming to the same conclusion as the pre- the first premise, it's for a different reason. It's not because we're not technically uh, technologically advanced enough or ever will be. It's metaphysically, this is a, a category error to say that physical things can have immaterial thoughts. There's no aboutness. There's uh, Nagel's uh, what is it like principle. Like, There's nothing that it's like for a robot to be. It doesn't have a first-person experience. Um, so, yeah, we would... What, what would you do there would you uh, so, so you're not buying into the argument you're not denying one of the pr- uh, premises because if you're or if you're in, uh, affirming one you would be committing yourself to the idea that you could be technologically advanced enough um, to make these conscious beings but we never will reach that point so in in denying the argument do you just say flat out there's a, a fourth premise that you're missing
1: That would be one way to understand it. I -hmm. I think that Bostrom's entire argument takes for granted the metaphysical possibility. And for for a naturalist like him, I mean, I assume he's he's a naturalist. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's going to assume that because he thinks that human beings are the product of naturalistic evolution. So since since we're here, he assumes we, we evolved and we are conscious. Therefore, consciousness must arise out of purely a naturalistic um, substrate or material yeah. substrate. Um, but that's a an assumption that certainly you and I and a, a whole host of non-materialists uh, are, are going to reject at the outset. So yeah. either you could say there's a tacit assumption behind the whole argument, or you could say it's just a different reason, a deeper reason for rejecting the first premise In other words, we're saying, I don't think we are going to reach the point where it's technically feasible, Mm -hmm. simply because it's not metaphysically possible. Uh, that's That's a really foundational reason for thinking that it's not technically possible. It's rather like saying, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we have the technology to create a square circle i don 't think we 'll ever get that advanced in our technology to create square circles, yeah, and uh, to which the answer is yeah, but that has nothing to do with scientific progress right. or you know that the, there 's not enough time in the universe or anything like that it 's just a metaphysical impossibility mm-hmm. ge- geometrical uh, impossibility
0: applied to material objects yeah that 's a great that 's a great point, I love that uh, something I found when I was studying. Uh, this, th- this argument. So, uh, Riz von Verk has a different conception than Bostrom. And, uh, Bostrom, as he is in, uh, as he talks in interviews about his hypothesis and as, or his argument really, um, because he, he's not saying that we do live in one. He says this is just the argument. And premise three is that we do live in the, in the simulated world. But he, uh, in responding to a bunch of, um, he kind of did what you, what do you do when he gets a lot of emails about stuff? So he wrote up a blog post about it and he says, um, all positive evidence for living in a simulation hypothesis have to be ruled out because one, we would expect, uh, if someone says I saw a bunch of pixels in my mirror, well, we would expect schizophrenia and in, in different types of mental, uh, disabilities, uh, in the base reality and also in the simulated world. So it could just be That you're seeing things just like someone would see things in the base reality. And also, the simulators, if they were this advanced, could just run the simulation back and scrub out any kind of evidence if they didn't want you to know. And so it's kind of funny that Bostrom's argument there rules out positive evidence, which a lot of people on the popular level will cite. They'll say, look at look at the 2016 election. There's no way Trump was supposed to win, but he won because the simulators wanted to see what would happen if Donald Trump had won instead of Hillary, like she did in the base reality. And I hear this all the time from uh, you know popular intellectuals, Elon Musk and stuff like that. They, they'll, they'll talk about this. Um, so I just want to note that Bostrom r- rules that out as well. So we have Machine functionalism is is metaphysically out. Um, positive evidence ruled out by Bostrom, so you can't really come forward and say, "Look at the look at the providence that we see in history." Well, no, this doesn't leave room for providence. And then also, there's there's no genuine creation account here. Um, have you have you thought about that? I can't remember if you talked about in that that in your article or not. But it it seems like it just kicks the can one step back. You know, we could say, "Well, who created the simulator creator?" Yeah.
1: What I find fascinating about these simulation scenario proposals and, and the fact that they're being seriously entertained
0: yeah.
1: is that they are basically intelligent design theories, <laughs> know. right? Yeah. You know, and if if anyone was suggesting a, a theistic intelligent design theory, then, of course, they're dismissed as a coup, yeah. religious, yep. you know, this is just uh, God of the gaps, um, but now we're allowed the, the simulators of the gaps, the, yeah. the scientists of the gaps. So it does seem does seem like there's a double standard here. That on the, on the one hand, um, you're 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 allowed to to appeal to some uh, outer reality, some intelligent agent that, that has designed everything around us. But of course, as you say, that that is kicking the can down the road. Now these these simulation hypotheses. They aren't really being offered as an explanation for apparent design in our reality. I don't think anyone's putting them forward. Um, maybe maybe some are. Maybe they're doing yeah, the kind of work. is like, they're, uh, they're, they're slipping in.
0: They're slipping um, in. Rizwan Virk and a couple other folks in in uh, physics have said this is a, this is our theory of everything. This is how we make yeah. sense of Einsteinian physics and uh, quantum physics because you know in a computer game the the, the what you're not looking at is not rendered and so when you look somewhere else it's the collapse of the wave function because Mm -hmm. it's being it's rendering now and it's it's exactly you said it's it's pretty bonkers but oh it's not not god
1: yes i know any any designer except god uh, Mm -hmm. will be acceptable but the the problem is with these scenarios that the the these designers are themselves finite beings right um even in the way that you were describing it earlier, oh, the the simulators want to run it a different way to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, that implies that they were they were limited in their knowledge. They actually right. had to run a simulation to find out how things were going to go, or or they didn't get it right first time. So you got to rewind it and scrub it and mm-hmm. and so forth. So clearly, these these simulators that are being postulated, they're very highly highly advanced, highly highly intelligent. Um, And yet they're still they're still finite in their intelligence. They're still apparently bound by space and time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're not not, they don't have the kind of properties that God has in classical theism. So they are. Again, the, the the hypothesis assumes that they themselves are evolved beings. Yeah, that they they evolved from whatever lower life forms and eventually reached a degree of of intellectual and technological advancement where they're able to create a simulator. But of course, they themselves are still. Presumably, inhabitants of some kind of universe right. that has limitations, that is that is temporal in nature and spatially bound in some way, and that makes them contingent. And so, you've still got the problems of uh, explaining why there's any contingent beings at all. You, know, mm-hmm. you you can run a some sort of cosmological argument. To say that even if even if we've got simulators within simulators within simulators, at some point this base reality is still a contingent universe that mm-hmm. needs a, a necessary being to explain why it exists in the first place, and you've got presumably some some problem of um, fine tuning or um, cosmic order because you can only create a simulation in a universe that has natural laws that that allow you to do it. Presumably, it's a it's a fine-tuned, finely-tuned universe. It may not have the, the laws and constants that our universe does or appears to have, but there has to be some sort of cosmic order. And again, you need some transcendent explanation for that,
0: I think. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and one thing I was thinking about with that is... The conversation collapses back down, like you said. So whether we have to go, we have to traverse a, uh, almost infinite of simulations, you still have to get back to base reality and say, well, there's certain conditions that have to, uh, obtain in order for this simulated simulation to happen. But likewise, uh, as insofar as this is a consistent universe, you, your uh, the Lord of non-contradiction argument still applies. So if, mm. if this is governed by logic, and we can still trace logic all the way back in, into into uh, the mind of God if your argument is, is uh, sound, yeah, that's right.
1: these these simulated universes are all physical in nature or they appear to be physical in nature. So you've got a a a physical simulation within a physical simulation within a physical simulation. None of this takes into account what we would regard as as abstract entities, right so, numbers propositions possible worlds and so forth if there are such things then then they have to be in the base reality and they have Mm -hmm. to in in some sense transcend all of the simulate simulations themselves one way we could put it is if there is a if there is a truth of the matter about the simulation hypothesis then there are truths and if there are truths then we can run an argument for god's existence from these from the existence of truths rather like the the lord of non-contradiction argument
0: i love that that's so great so so even if you didn't want to quibble over um machine functionalism uh, and theories of mind even if you don't know that like just familiar familiarize yourself with dr anderson's lord of non-contradiction which is is also, kind of technical and hard, but um, there, this isn't the smokescreen they think it is. Uh, is what I, I want to tell people uh, out there listening right now. Like it, it's just another layer, and it's pretty easy to argue against. Uh, though it is interesting, and I think it's interesting because it makes us think, and I think thinking is good. It makes us think about God, and could could this possibly be happening? But I think one of the the most powerful arguments against. Uh, the idea that we're living in a computer simulation is the problem of self-defeat. Um, can you can you lay out? Do you have this on the top of your mind that you can uh, lay this out for us?
1: Sure. I think there's, there are several ways you could run this argument, and there, I, I, I briefly laid out one line of thinking at the end of my blog post that you referred to, and I think I think you've written something on this that takes us maybe a slightly different approach. Yeah. But what I argued is that the And I was thinking mainly of something like bostrom's uh, yeah. simulation hypothesis, where you have some species that has evolved to the point, some some species like us that has evolved to the point and and become technologically advanced enough to be able to run a a simulation. and that whole scenario presupposes a certain amount of scientific knowledge. It Mm -hmm. it presupposes that there are computers and that computers can become advanced enough to become conscious or to 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 think and uh, to host some sort of simulated world with conscious beings like us. So the, the entire simulation hypothesis, wh- whatever this this base reality is, it has the same kind of scientific features in general terms as as our. Reality, because we're we're conceiving it along those lines, but the problem is that then we, if, if we are in fact in a simulation, then all of our scientific knowledge that we have about the laws of physics and the nature of computing devices and whether computing, whether computers can become conscious, all of that knowledge, all of that, cons- all all of those concepts, are derived. From experiences of a virtual world a fake right. world okay mm-hmm. and so it, it seems illegitimate to say that all of the concepts and all the scientific knowledge that we've derived from this this simulated world can be applied uh uh, uh to uh, whatever the base reality is right um because this base reality we're we're actually conceiving it along the same sort of scientific lines as as the world that we actually inhabit mm-hmm. um, and that that does seem to be self-defeating because on the one hand you're saying this this world that we inhabit is not real it's simulated and yet we can use it as a guide to understand some hypothesized real reality yeah um, it's uh, it's almost uh, it's a little like um you know wittgenstein's ladder where you you know you have to you have to climb up the ladder to get on the roof and then you kick the ladder away from behind right. you once you've got there it seems yeah. that's that same sort of self-defeating dynamic
0: yeah i think i think you're right on that and uh, that's what got me so excited about about that that argument is that uh and i think you do note this in the blog post as well that not not only does bostrom uh his his argument presuppose this kind of scientific knowledge but it it starts there. It starts, hey, look, everything is exactly like it looks to you, but just fast forward 50 years and then what would it be like? And so it mm-hmm. it's explicitly saying, take what you see right now as your starting evidence. But then what, what you do is you just turn it back on itself and say, well, then we would never get started in the first place. If we get to this conclusion that premise three is true, that we're living in a computer simulation, then we actually shouldn't trust uh, the scientific knowledge, the empirical knowledge that we have to get us started, and so it's like the snake biting its tail, kind of self-defeat. Is, right. is that right? Okay. Yeah, that's right. You you have to sort of put yourself in Bostrom's shoes. He's he's
1: starting with the assumption that uh, human beings are highly evolved mm-hmm. animals. Okay, so right. he's he's assuming the entire. Neo-Darwinian, or some variation of the neo-Darwinian uh, evolutionary account of human origins, and saying now, now imagine that scenario uh, extended forwards to the point where this these people like or creatures like us um, have developed these technologies. But the problem is that 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 starting assumption is one that he thinks he knows within, not not within the base reality, but within the right. simulated world. Right. In other words, all of the evidence that he thinks he has for a neo-Darwinian account of human origins is from within a simulation. Right. So you can't then assume that that's how things would be in the, in the base reality.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not sure how different my, my answer is than yours, but I wanted to also deal with, um, with Rizvan Verk's uh, simulated Uh, video game hypothesis that we are in the matrix that there is we're a brain in a vat Mm. and i thought about um putnam's argument and i just i don't really get it and i it might commit us to like semantic externalism in a way that i i wouldn't want to be committed to but what i was thinking was uh this is a point that actually ben shapiro brought up uh when he's talking about the matrix and is randomly he, he said the matrix the uh the the directors and the the authors they never address the question: Is is Neo still in the Matrix? Because once he woke up from the Matrix, why should he not believe that he's in a nested Matrix? Why would he ever mm-hmm. trust anything ever again? And that's what I was trying to get at. And it's it's a similar point, if not the same point as you, that if our cognitive faculties have been aimed at at a lie, the uh, deception that we are living in base reality, then we can never come to know that we're not living in base reality. So you you have discovered that. All of your cognitive faculties are aimed at a a falsity that you're living in base reality. Mm-hmm. Once you come to know that, uh, you have a defeater for all of your beliefs, including the beliefs that you live that in a in a computer simulation. Do you do you think that works? Yeah.
1: I do. I, I think that that's a distinct argument from the one that I'm offering because yeah. the, the one I was using is is based on our scientific knowledge. Right, so right. so the, the, the hypothesis itself is based on a certain subset of scientific knowledge. Yeah. But once you accept the hypothesis, you then have a defeater for that scientific knowledge. Yeah. You, if I understand your argument correctly, are broadening that out mm-hmm. to our entire belief system. Yeah. And and I think you noted this yourself. I, I had a look at your paper, which was oh, nice. excellent, by the way. Thank so you. I really enjoyed Enjoyed reading that. Um, what you're doing is is really adapting um, Plantinga's uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism. So so Plantinga is, is entertaining the hypothesis of evolutionary naturalism, he's saying. So Assume assume evolutionary naturalism is true in that case there would be no reason to think that your beliefs are, or, or that your cognitive faculties are reliably truth-directed, yeah. right? Um, uh, it, he, he basically argues it would be inscrutable. The probability that our, well, our, um, actually I think his argument now is that that it would be low. I think he's ditched the inscrutable aspect yep. now. It just, it, it's a very low probability that your cognitive factors would be geared towards truth, and therefore that most of your beliefs would be true in which case you now have a defeater for your belief in evolutionary naturalism.
0: Right.
1: What you are doing is, is instead of uh, considering evolutionary naturalism, you're considering the simulation hypothesis where our cognitive faculties are not in fact the product of blind evolutionary processes, but rather the product of some super beings, some, you know, the the simulators, whoever, whoever they are, 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 benevolent or not so benevolent uh architects right. you know of of, of this matrix mm-hmm. and and your argument is that it, it on that hypothesis our our cognitive faculties are the product of design but malevolent design right because we've been given an entire set of experiences and, and and intuitions as well because it's not just our experiences but we we have this intuition that that the world is real that um you know that, that our cognitive factors are in fact reliable um but all of these intuitions are misguided they've mm-hmm. been uh, that we've been given this this full panoply of False beliefs yeah. and uh, and therefore we have a, a defeater for really for any any argument or reasons we might have for holding the the simulation hypothesis in the first place
0: is that right I think that 's what you're arguing that is right and and be, um, part of that is because one of my friends uh, studies epistemology at Northwestern and he was he was he kept poking at me on this idea because i love self-defeating arguments i love it and he loves probabilities and bayesian reasoning so we go back and forth and he's my superior of course but um he he brought up um chalmers chalmers argument and chalmers is uh basically and chalmers is goofy all over the place i love him but he's he's very goofy and he's like, well, you know, what if it turns out that uh, the stuff that, that the reality is made up of, you know, is not quarks, but uh, little, little digital things, you know. And it turns out it would still be a desk. This desk that I'm touching right now would still be a desk. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to get past that argument. He, he does this, I call it a qua move because uh, I'm a theology student. But he says, you know, uh, Neo qua the matrix thought that he was in Manhattan or wherever he was in an office building. And that was true qua the matrix, even though mm. qua the real world, he's in New Jersey, maybe. And he's, you know, a brain in a vat or a full body in a vat. And so he's doing this qua move and saying that we can be justified in this paper uh, called Matrix as Metaphysics. So I wanted to undercut that and everything and just say, mm. if as long as someone designed our cognitive faculties to, to be aimed at a lie, and the lie is that you live in base reality, uh, the rest could be no problem. but you think in the intuitions, your cognitive faculties tell you this, whether base reality is digital or not, if you're not living in base reality, you, I don't think you can come to know that you're not because then you, your whole process, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's all self-defeating. And so then I think, I don't know that it's self-refuting. So even if it is possible that we are living in computer simulation, you would be unjustified in believing that because it's self-defeating, not self-refuting. Do you, do you make that sharp yeah. distinction between the two? I, I understand the distinction.
1: that, okay. that A self, self-refuting self uh, proposition is one that, that is false if it's true. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a direct contradiction. Right. Whereas a self-defeating argument is one that sort of cuts out the rational support from under itself. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the that the matrix hypothesis is self-defeating in that respect, insofar as uh, the moment you come to believe that you are in the matrix, you do seem to uh, thereby acquire a defeater for really everything yes. that you believe, yes. including whatever reasons led you to the thought or the conclusion that you are in the matrix. Yeah. And, and I, I think the the point you made earlier, I think you attributed it to, to Ben Shapiro, is that once once you're out of the matrix, there's a sense in which your your trust in your senses has been permanently undermined. Exactly, yeah. And certainly going back into the matrix, it's never it's never the same. No. Um, because you're always going to see it as as illusory and virtual, whereas you previously understood it to be the the plain veridical reality um but even once you're outside of it there are questions raised about whether all you've done is ascended one level up the simulation right. and you haven't hit base reality why would you ever have grounds then to think that you had hit hit base reality or that any of your reasoning ever made contact with mm-hmm. that base reality yeah. not so much not so much your experiences because you could always think, "Well, I'm just in the next le- I've just gone up a level or down a level, depending on how you order them. but but the point is that you you think that you can actually um, reason your way to some truths about the base reality, even mm-hmm. if you're not experiencing, you, you you have to be to escape this skepticism you have to trust that you're able to reason your way to truths about the base reality and i don't see how you could do that you're just you're, you're caught up in this um morass of of skepticism not just about your experiences but all of your uh, intuitions and reasoning processes
0: yeah yeah and this is something that so the the matrix uh the the folks who wrote the matrix were pulling from philip k dick and it was kind of a whole homage to him Mm -hmm. because uh he he's one of the first uh in this well maybe not one of the first but he famously said we're living in a computer simulation in like 1977 but uh what what dick would always do is he would leave you in this foggy haze are you really in real reality and that was like this cliffhanger and i always mess with you and with the, the the matrix authors they 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 just dropped the ball on this in, in one of the movies, you know, he stops a, uh, a squiddy robot thing in, in base reality. And you're like, left thinking is, are you not? And they should have ran with that some more, but they didn't, maybe they will Mm -hmm. in the new one. But I always felt so bad once, once I considered your argument and thought about this more, I feel so bad about Neo because he can just never be justified ever again. Right. He's got defeated for everything. It's, it's like that poor guy.
1: Yeah. 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 How can, how can you live like that? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You'd have to, you know, you'd have to do what David Hume did, you know, just go play some backgammon and try to try to forget it all, forget how you reasoned yourself into this uh, yeah. skeptical mess. Yeah. yeah. Although speaking of, of movies and how in in, in uh, the Matrix, as you say, I don't know if it was, the se- I think it was the second one it was. Uh, where they, they started messing with the, whether the base reality really was the base reality. And as mm-hmm. you say, they didn't run with that. One thing I I loved about the movie Inception is it really did introduce yeah. that ambiguity. And I, I won't give away any spoilers, although if people haven't seen it by now, they really ought to have, yeah. but, but there, there is, it does leave uh, a very open question at the end about, about where,
0: where base reality really is. Yeah. And that's a, that's they were more faithful to uh descartes dream argument and i think that's that's part of it too when you're in it you think that you're i had a crazy dream last night where i had i had to memorize i was talking with taylor sear actually uh, philosopher of free will and it was weird but i had to memorize something and i woke up memorizing it and i was like that felt like a, you know so dreams are crazy um but dr Anderson, so so one of my friends has said well our reasoning is a priori like I'm not, he's much smarter than me. So he would say it in a different way than that. But can it be that our reasoning um, can be, our rational faculties have to, that they're a priori, so we can trust them uh, in a way that would help us transcend uh, the problem of finding out that we're in a computer simulation? Or do you, because I don't see it. I think that mm. if it, I think the self-defeat argument works, but is there anything there? I'm I'm doing a terrible job presenting it. And I should have asked him before this. Can you see any reason why someone could evade this by saying, "No, our reasoning's a priori. No matter what level of reality we're we're in, we're still reasoning the same, just mm. put in a situation." Maybe, if, maybe if you're more uh, inclined towards internalism.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, Descartes, of course, argued that even if even if your experiences were illusory. Uh, you could still know that you exist because that's that's a, you know, indubitable um, a priori item of knowledge. And maybe there are other items like um, mathematical truths, the laws of logic and so forth that that we just know, even if we can't trust our senses. And I I think that there's something to that in that our uh, a priori reason does have a kind of undeniable um undeniability to it that our uh our sensor experiences do not yeah. but i don't think it therefore follows that uh that skeptical questions couldn't be raised about a priori beliefs as well yeah. um, to to circle back to Plantinger's argument from you know the evolutionary argument against naturalism um i don't think that one could appeal to a priori reason to escape that and say, well, maybe it's just our, um, maybe maybe it's just our sensory, our our perceptual beliefs that are undermined by that. But uh, really, it's an argument about whether any of our cognitive faculties, including our intuitions, including our rational intuitions, are trustworthy. Now, certainly, it's the case that we can't help but trust them, But it doesn't mean that we couldn't work ourselves into a into a skeptical scenario where we we uh, start to to doubt them or or um, raise serious questions about their trustworthiness. Um, So, yeah, you you might be able to you you might be able to um, defend your beliefs as being internally justified but whether they have uh, external rationality and whether whether they really are true, true, um, that's that's a separate question, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's great. And, and the intuition language is huge. Uh, I, I hadn't used that before, but I really like that. I'm going to I'm going to adjust my my argument there, because, yeah, even your rational intuitions, especially that you're living in base reality, have been aimed at a falsehood. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's great. Thank you. Um, So I want to transition now to the authorial analogy, which is another uh, line of reasoning uh, and there's arguments in there, which have really been influential to me. And I've been thinking about this uh, for a long time since Calvinism and the problem of evil came out, which is, I think maybe 2016. Uh, Mm -hmm. your, Your paper in here is called Calvinism and the first sin. And at this time, I think I was reading a lot of John frame and I think I saw Wayne Grudem, there's a few uh, theologians who, oh, C.S. Lewis and, and Dorothy Sayers, who talk about, you know, the God-world relation as uh, analogous to an author and his or her story. And so um, I love this analogy. I think it's the truth, too. I don't think it's just a intuition pump. I think we're literally living in a theodrama or a or a, some sort of novel, an analogous novel. But uh, some folks, some theologians today... We'll use the simulation hypothesis and say, well, if we make it into a metaphor for the God-world relation, then it can help people, you know, um, see how how uh, they can be reason reasonable. They can have rational beliefs about God's providence and such. And for me, um, I, I don't think that's – I think metaphors are literally false anyways. So I, don't, I like analogies over metaphors. But I don't think the simulation hypothesis rightly picks out the attributes of God in – the same way that the authorial analogy does because god creates with words um, so anyways uh let's let's get on to the authorial analogy what may how do you think of this how did you come to to this line of thought that god's like an author
1: well the first time i started writing about this was in that article that you mentioned in, in Calvinism and the Problem of Evil, where I was invited to write specifically on, on Calvinism and, and the first sin and mm-hmm. how how we can. Well, the, the question of the first sin raises a, a number of theological challenges for Calvinism, and uh, one would be the charge that uh, God is the author of sin if, if we ex- if we accept some sort of um, comprehensive divine determinism, most. Would say that the Calvinism commits you to some some version of divine determinism, where God uh, God deter- is the ultimate determiner of all things. That would include the first sin as well as every other sin, and uh, that seems to make God the author of evil. Um, it, it implies that God is is culpable for yeah. uh, the sins of his creatures and so forth. And I I started thinking about uh, what are some ways to answer these challenges and it seemed to me that a lot of it had to do with your how you conceived of um causation uh, divine causation mm-hmm. so if we're saying along with the the great reformed confessions that god is the the first cause of all things but god works through second causes how do we understand the connection between God as first cause and then the secondary causes, including human free choices? Mm. and it seemed to me that when people object to the idea that God is the first cause of all things and is causally determining all things, then they're thinking on as though God. Is one cause on the same level as every other cause? So there's there's sort of this this matrix of univocal causes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and 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 God starts uh, starts the the causal chain going. So God causes one thing, which causes another thing, which causes another thing, and eventually at the end of the cause, Adam sins or do you,
0: do you call this the, sins. The, do you call this the domino theory? I think one of the authors did.
1: Yeah, no, that was that was me. I I, I said a lot of people think about this in terms of what I call the domino model uh, on analogy with uh, a line of dominoes. You, you you see these people who, you know, the videos of people who, who lay out millions of dominoes all in a big chain and you just knock over the first one, and it knocks over the second one. And so you've got a chain of, of causation. And I think some people think that God is first cause is like the guy who knocks over the first domino and then it knocks the second, knocks the third. And you can obviously trace back responsibility. So the 100th domino falls because the 99th one did and so forth, but ultimately it's the guy who flicked the first domino who has to take responsibility for all the other dominoes. And people think think of divine causes in that way, that if if I cause an evil act, then there's a chain of like causes that go back and ultimately terminate with God. Mm-hmm. And the... The culpability, if this, if this is a, a sinful action, then the culpability for that action has to be traced back along the chain of causes to God, and the, and the, and the causal buck stops with God, you might say. And what I argue in that paper is that uh, I think the domino model, uh, uh, among its many deficiencies, fails to recognize the creator-creature distinction, mm-hmm. and that God's causes are operating on a different ontological level than than the creation. So what i argue is that we need to distinguish intramundane causes that is causes within the creation and that would be that would include natural causes like a, you know a tree falling down and crushing a plant or something like that and also uh, creaturely free causes however you understand uh, creaturely agent causes we would be in that matrix of um uh, uh intramundane Causes. I'm aware when I use the word matrix now, given our yeah. earlier discussion, <laughs> not not matrix in that sense. Matrix yeah. just as a network of of causes. Um, so there are intramundane causes within the creation, but God's causes. Uh, God's causation operates at a at a at a different level and a different way. And so it's a it's a mistake to trace culpability through intramundane causes back through divine causes Mm -hmm. to god and so i suggest that a better way to think of uh, god's causation is on analogy with the author of a novel uh, where you distinguish between the characters within the novel and the interactions that they have so there's the, the level of the story itself but then there's the level of the author's relationship to the story. So I use um, the example of Tolkien and, you know, Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien creates this, this imaginary world of middle earth, and he has um, Gollum do something to um, Frodo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Gollum does something to Frodo. And there so there's that cause, that causation within the level of the story itself. Now, we can ask the question did tolkien make gollum do that mm-hmm. well in in a sense he did but not uh, not on the same level as a character within the story you know if if say uh, gandalf had come along and gandalf made gollum do something to frodo mm-hmm. that's a that's a different relationship than tolkien as the author making these things happen now of course it is an analogy so there are points of Obviously, points of difference that we can draw out between our understanding of an author and a story in our experience and God's relationship to His creation. But nonetheless, what what that authorial model does, at least, is it brings out more clearly that that divine causes are operating at a different level than causes within the creation. Yeah. And so, and so to to just trace back cul- culpability to God in that in that direct way, um, I think is, is overlooking that pretty fundamental metaphysical point, namely the creator creature distinction.
0: Yeah, that, that was so helpful. And I always use Tolkien now because of, because of your article and it, I just see talking with Christian I talk about this, uh, and their, their eyes light up. Cause everyone gets Lord of the range of Christian. You've seen the movies, you read the books. And I, I like talking about uh Smeagol killing his cousin, uh, D- Diggle, Diggle, Diggle. And I say, well, who's responsible for that? And, uh, well, in a sense, yes, it's Tolkien, like you said, but within the story, add, uh, or intranarratively, another great word that you've used, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's responsible. And so, yes, Tolkien is responsible, but not in the same manner. If you were to go arrest Tolkien and say you're responsible for, for Deagle's death, it would be silly. Mm-hmm. Everyone would laugh at you. That wouldn't be taken because it's two different levels of reality going on. Um, right, and so I, I, lo- I love that model. Right? Um, I, I love that it's it's two different levels. And you say, I think you end up saying, if God is morally responsible for the evil that happens in His story, it's in a thin sense, or, or he's not morally. If he's the author of sin, it's not in a morally culpable way. Is that right? Right. Well,
1: we can say that he's he's not culpable simply in virtue of. Causing it as as the author of creation. So so the, yeah. the, just the mere fact that God is the first cause, and I argue the ultimate sufficient cause of everything that takes place in mm-hmm. His creation. That mere fact alone doesn't make Him culpable. But then there's also yeah. the subsequent question of intentions which need to be brought out as well. So to, to again go back to the, the Tolkien example, so uh, bad things happen in Tolkien's books. People do bad things. They do evil things. Is Tolkien approving of those? Is he commending those? No, because they're part of a larger narrative, which I think we would argue has a profoundly moral point to it. It's for, in, in a sense, it's a, uh, we're applying a sort of greater good theodicy exactly. to yeah. the bad things that happen in in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, Tolkien has a greater good. He, there's a there's a moral message that's being communicated, and there's a sense in which actually these evil things have to happen in order for that that uh, good message to to be communicated. Yeah. And so we can apply again. It's an analogy, but I think it's uh, I think it's a, a respectable one that um, God. Uh, as it were, writes these evil events. And the supreme example, of course, is the crucifixion of Christ itself. That's, that's the paradigmatic case within which every other evil has to be judged. Um, but that he writes that into the story um, because he has uh, perfectly good and holy intentions mm-hmm. for the, for the outcome of the story.
0: Yeah, you No, know, I I love I love the authorial analogy and uh, I wrote my master's thesis on this. I wanted to write on God and time because C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about this. How you know when when someone's an author is writing the story and it gets to the plot, uh, the the climax, but then the author goes to take a drink of coffee, the characters uh, at, uh, intranarratively they're not frozen in time mm. waiting for the author to come back. And I like that relation between God and reality and. Dr. Van goes, yeah, but the problem of evil is right there. So you gotta, So he, he made me do it on the problem of evil instead. And um, something that, that initially people, when they don't like the analogy, they'll always push back and say, yeah, but Smeagol isn't real. Smeagol isn't real. And it wasn't until I saw um, a mutual acquaintance or friend, uh, Paul Manada on Facebook said, he, he gave this genie case. And he says, well, imagine you, you find a genie and you wish that Lord of the Rings, that Middle Earth were True that it were real, that there was a pocket universe or something. Would that all of a sudden make the story bad? Would it, would, would it automatically be a bad story if if Samwise were a real person? And like mm-hmm. you said, no, it still seems like there's a greater good. still seems like it's a good story, even if the characters are, are real in the same sense. Um, my my friend, Paul Maxwell has made the point that, yeah, it's not real. He, he's brought that argument up as well. And we're going to talk about that on the podcast. So stay tuned listeners for that. Um, but so then I had to face a bunch of objections to this and one that was raised, um, actually because of our, uh, because of your simulation hypothesis argument, it was raised, um, for myself as I was reading philosophy of mind stuff. And I thought, could the self-defeat argument apply to the authorial analogy? Um, and a lot of people have tried to apply this to determinism and I'm a theological determinist. So my view of the authorial analogy is going to be deterministic. I don't some Arminians use it, but I don't think they use it consistently because I think this is a theological deterministic model. So uh, if, if the, the reasons for your belief are ultimately uh, God's reasons, God wrote the story and he caused you to have these beliefs, then you wouldn't be justified in these beliefs. But furthermore, any actions that you perform based on these beliefs the, the culpability I think would collapse all the way back down to God. And so that was part of my thesis was refuting that claim. And mm-hmm. you, you've already talked about it and you talked about it in your essay as well that um add, or sorry, I keep saying add. So intranarratively the characters have reasons for their beliefs and a mm-hmm. good author will give them reasons for their beliefs. A bad author will just, uh, you know, ex ex machina, yeah, uh, deus ex machina, drop in a belief in your head that doesn't make sense. with your. There's no historical conditions for your beliefs and your your freedom. But God's the perfect author. And so he authors in such a way that even though you are uh, theologically determined, you have uh, reasons for the beliefs that you have. And they're your reasons and they're good reasons. And so right. um, I don't think there's any self-defeat there, even though uh, they love to charge that again and again and again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, what the what the authorial model does is it, is it reminds us to avoid these level confusions.
0: Yes. Where
1: w- within in the, as you say, in the intranarrative level, mm-hmm. all of the characters, as well as having, um, you know, causes that are acting on them within that world. They also have reasons for their actions and their reasons can be entirely genuine ones. Of course, they can have some false beliefs. They're going to make some um, fallacious inferences, of course. Um, But the fact that, that, that there is someone, there is an author of that story doesn't change that at all. Um, So I can have, I can have perfectly good reasons for doing what I do and it can also be the case that god ordained to use the theological language or author to use the uh, an analogical language authored that i would have those reasons but the fact that god is the author of me having those reasons of course is entirely compatible with me having those reasons in fact it entails it mm-hmm. so you know if, if god if god ordains that that i have good reasons for doing what i do then I do have good reasons for doing what I do, um, and I think as well the the, the the determinism on this issue is is a bit of a red herring because everything that we've been saying uh, a Molinist could say as well. Uh, insofar as Molinism is committed to meticulous divine providence as well, okay, the the way that God accomplishes that is different, but on the Molinist view. Um, uh, you have libertarian free will, so there's no causal determinism, but there is a weaker kind of determinism insofar as God sovereignly decrees that a certain uh, feasible world will be actualized, and that decree is efficacious. So yeah. even even on a Molinist model, um, God is in a sense the author of everything. There there is a comprehensive divine decree. Decree, God is the author of of the entirety of human history, um, but that's. That tries to accommodate uh, uh, an indeterministic view of free will. But if there is an objection to the authorial model, then it would apply to both Calvinism and Molinism equally, which shows mm-hmm. that the question of determinism is actually irrelevant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, selfishly want to kick out the the molinists off of the authorial analogy but um you're, you're, you're right in that aspect if, if the, the determinism is the problem uh what, what i found helpful is um a theory in free will called reasons responsiveness or uh, uh guidance control which which has reasons responsiveness and mechanism control and so uh you can be determined by uh but you're determined by reasons and uh responding to them so So uh, Tolkien has determined that that Smeagol will turn into Gollum, but he has his own reasons for doing that. He hated his cousin. He wanted to steal the ring. And they were his reasons, and they weren't overridden. There was no microchip going in there. It wasn't going against his character. Uh, And so um, by by having the characters respond with reasons, uh, respond to reasons, they can still be morally culpable – for the actions that they take on those reasons while still being determined to do so. Uh, But, but furthermore, this is something that, that Dr. Van Hooser does uh, in his book. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. I spent like a whole year reading this book. Uh, I'll tell it later when I remember it, but uh, he talks about two different ways of authorship. One is monological one voice and one is dialogical two voices. And uh, I think that the analogy uh, can be stretched even further. If we, if you view God's relation to the world as a dialogical author, that we live in a dialogue, not a monologue. And so how does God determine that we do stuff? Well, he gives us reasons and he's a character in, he's the main character of the story. Mm -hmm. So he's presenting different reasons to us and he's going through our minds. He's not overriding our minds when he does this, even, even in divine illumination or in, uh, um, bringing us to faith, regenerating us. He opens our eyes and he persuades mm. us and he illumines us. He doesn't force us. He doesn't drop in ideas into our mind that don't make sense in our causal history. Mm. Um, and so I love it. So I just wanted, I wanted to thank you for that because you used this as a way to think about the first sin, but it opened my eyes to a full God world relation that I think is literally true. Uh, even, even if God is not univocally an author in the same way that Tolkien is. Um, But it's an analogy. And so analogies can give us uh, literal truths, even though it's not uh, Mm -hmm. a univocal sense. And just read Genesis 1 or John 3 or Psalm 33, I think, God creates by his word, just like an author does. You know, Tolkien started writing and Middle-earth was. Um, But of course, he's a sub-author and he's not creating ex nihilo the way God is.
1: Yeah, let, let me throw out something else then uh, yeah. to the mix because I've been thinking about this a little more in in anticipation of our conversation yeah and um, when we say that the the authorial model is an analogy mm-hmm. we could mean that in the in the weak sense that it's just uh, just a way of thinking a helpful way of thinking about it. it's a conceptual tool kind of like when you're you're teaching um, biology and you say that the cell is like a factory, so you use the analogy of a, a, a factory the cell's got different parts in it and its it's like a factory, mm-hmm. but we're not saying that there's some as it were deep metaphysical relationship uh, between a cell and a, and a factory it's just it's just a mental tool for thinking about and you could you could treat the authorial model in that way, but I wonder if in fact we shouldn't treat it as as something deeper as as getting at and an analogical metaph- metaphysical relationship between God's authorship of creation and our authorship of stories. Mm-hmm. And l- let me give you a, a, a couple of, well, maybe just one parallel. So we think of the relationship between the father and the son within the Trinity. So we've got a father-son relationship. And we say that that is analogical to relation the human father-son relationship. Now we're not just saying that's a helpful way of thinking about it. We're not right. simply saying, you know, God's God the Father's relationship to God the son is if you think of it, it's kind of like a father's son relationship. You know, we're saying something deeper than that. We're saying saying that's the archetypal yeah. father-son relationship. And that our human father-son relationships, that that parental relationship, while there are differences, that is a that is a, an archetypal relationship. Uh, reflection yeah. of that original relationship between the father and the son. So there's 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 something. Um, it, it's a created analogy of that relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity. Now we could say something similar about our ability to author stories. Mm-hmm. That is, when we say that uh, Tolkien is the author of the story, that that capacity. That Tolkien has to author a story is actually just it just the, the finite version of God's works of creation and providence. Yeah. That is to say that God's works of creation and providence are the archetypal authorship a- activity. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not just uh, a way of thinking, but actually our ability to author stories and almost, as it were, to create ex nihilo. I mean, we don't obviously literally create ex nihilo in the way that God does. But when when I come up with a, a, a an idea or a story and I create characters, there's a sense in which I'm bringing something into existence out of nothing at, at, at that story level, at that narratival level. What if that is just the ectypal uh, reflection of God's original authorship of the creation um and i think that adds a a kind of depth to the authorial model that you don't get simply if you're treating it like a a helpful way of thinking about it i think there's something deeper going on there
0: i think you're absolutely right and that's that's the the main point uh i made in my thesis uh i was defending against the problem of evil because i think it's actually i think the authorial uh model uh, analogy is the, the, the way reality is. So I wanted to defend it to bolster it and show that not only does it can it be defended against evil, it actually can give a positive answer against evil. And you alluded to already uh, a greater good theodicy. Uh, it's a narratival greater good theodicy. And it's uh, it, you know based on God revealing himself uh, more fully in the cross. And so why is there evil in the world? Well, because it's part of the story. And without Without evil, without Satan's temptation and the fall, you don't have the fullest revelation of Christ. You don't see, uh, you don't see God's nature as redeemer and uh, just and justifier. And and so there's a fuller revelation because of that. But the story necessitates it. But then furthermore, like you said, it's not a uh, Feuerbachian projection. It's not an anthropomorphism to call mm-hmm. God an author. He's the original author, just like you said. Right. He he created with words. In the beginning, he spoke and it was uh, Psalm, I think it's 33, calls him like a star breather, you know, because of his word went out. Mm. And just like you said, yeah, we we create with words as well. And this is something that distinguishes us from the animals as well. They're they're not creating, they're not sub-creators, as Tolkien says. Uh, They don't use words in the same way. So I do think there's something deep here, um, and I would love to see it catch on. And that's part of the reason I also want to take shots at the simulation hypothesis, because I I don't think – I think the simulation hypothesis can be kind of an intuition pump. I don't think it's a very good one, thinking about the divine world relation, uh, especially when we have the authorial analogy here. Maybe mm-hmm. if you were a process theologian or uh, some, some sort of process Molinist, maybe, that, that God is using simulation uh, hypothesis – simulated worlds to gain that middle knowledge or something. Oh, okay. You guys can have that, I guess. But um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to to further thank you that even through, you know, your blog posts that, that you're saying these are, I'm just dumping these out there. There's lots of us out here who have been really encouraged by those and, and we've been mulling on them for a while. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot more people start using simulated uh, simulation hypothesis in their theology papers. I hope they don't. I hope they hear this and they instead turned to authorial analogy. Um, but it, it, it's been so helpful for me. So, so thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah. So um, the book, it was remythologizing theology by Dr. Van Hooser. I, I recommend right. you check that out. And then uh, this book Calvinism and the problem of evil is what we've been mentioning again and again. And that's edited by David Alexander and Daniel Johnson this is an awesome book. I've read this a few times, and i reference referenced it in many of my papers. I definitely recommend. Calvinist, Arminian, whatever, read that book. And then I have to plug this one as well. Uh, Dr. Anderson's um, dissertation-turned-book, Paradox in Christian Theology. And Paul Helm talked about uh, somewhere in here about how it kind of snuck through. Maybe it was in a review. How it yeah, snuck- it was
1: he, uh, on his blog, actually. Okay. Uh, Helm's okay. deep. He, he wrote a very generous, kind Review of it, saying yeah, it sort of it sort of snuck out and no one noticed it, but yeah. um, I think uh, it it has been picked up on. I, I it's very gratifying when I see it cited in in some other work.
0: Well, and that's why I want to bring it up as well because uh, it it's taken maybe it, it, it didn't explode like it should have, but it, it has been picked up. I talked with Oliver, Oliver Chris the other day on the podcast and we mentioned it, and we um, I saw. You you tweeted today, maybe, that uh, the new contradictory Christ uh, deals with it. So, again, a really important work, and for any uh, budding theologians and philosophers out there who think about Christian theology, you got to read this book, Paradox in Christian Theology, an Analysis of its Presence, Character, and Epistemic Status. Um, So, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I would love to be able to entice you on again. I hope that you come back on. We could talk some more uh, deep stuff i um, really excited. I think you're going on Capturing Christianity soon as well. Uh, I've been invited. Uh, I guess we got to work out some details. Yeah, yeah. that would be fantastic. So look look for that, uh, folks at home. Um, Dr. Anson, so uh, where, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your stuff, read more of your stuff?
1: Really, the, the best place to go would be my website that we mentioned earlier, so www.prognosco.com, P-R-O-G-I-N-O-S-K-O.com, or uh, if you use your favorite search engine to look up Analogical Thoughts. That's the title of the blog, Analogical Thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a one-stop shop for everything James Anderson related. You can find links to some of my published work and some um, summaries of my books and and then there's just a lot of random thoughts of varying quality uh, that have been put into blog posts over the last i don't know
0: maybe 10 years or so yeah well they're they're awesome there's a lot of molinism a lot on all sorts of stuff on there uh, so go check that out uh, and also i have an earlier episode with dr anderson where we talk about transcendental arguments and we get into all sorts of random uh, metaphysics as well so check that one out as well Uh, We could talk about this some more, and Lord willing, someday we will. But for now, this is going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.